Hello, Tim. Hello, Ryan. Hey, and hello, everyone listening. Welcome to Dismembering Horror, episode 167 of Dismembering Horror, the podcast true where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and myself, Tim Aslan, to myself. That's right. We talk about what worked for us, what did not work for us, and anything else we found interesting or noteworthy about a, you guessed it, horror film. We like to delve into the darkness, dissect dearthly delights, all sorts of fun stuff like that. We come at it from a filmmaker's point of view. Tim and I both have those minds and muscles, so we can come at it from that that kind of critical lens. Um, but also, just mostly, I'd say, under the spirit of friends getting together, dismembering all that there is to dismember about a horror film, because we find the genre to be especially ripe, fun, tackleable, and fruitful to do all that with. I think that covers it. Yeah, the, there you have it. Okay, great. Whether you're just joining us or not, there you go. And for episode 167, we are officially moved on from our October 2021, where we dismembered three part threes of the famous franchises. So we're we're getting back to our old hat pull uh, methodology here. But Tim, just some uh, quick news, I guess, before we get to this week's film horror news tim i don't know if i should put this as a quiz or not with you let's see so it's been announced that there are going to be two revivals of an iconic horror another iconic uh horror franchise that we have covered on this show one is going to be done through elijah wood's specter vision and the other is going to be a uh, Mexican-produced film that's going to be Spanish-language. So there's your hint, hint. Spanish-language. This film was was originally Spanish-language, but it was not Mexican. Oh, my God. Am I supposed to glean something from that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Should um, I give you more hints? Jesus. Uh, I, I Okay, horror icon in a certain country that went on to spawn like nine films... TV shows, all sorts oh. of stuff. Oh wait, did we we talked about this at some I, point, didn't we? No, I said this is one that we've covered on our show. We've yeah, covered. Oh, is it the? Is it the? Um, damn it! What was that called? The guy with the top hat. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you mean Coffin Joe? That's right, Coffin Joe. <laughs> So even though Coffin Joe uh, <laughs> was originally played by the filmmaker himself due to, uh, well, just working with what he had available, kind of became a, kind of a, a, not reluctant icon, but a just, just going with, going with the flow icon. 
Yeah, no, uh, I don't know if it's going to be at midnight, I'd take your soul or what, but there's two new Coffin Joe projects in the works. I thought you'd like wow. to know. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, that's exciting. Yeah, since you're such a fan, I know. Um, and then lastly, I just thought it was fun. So um, I just wanted to mention real quick, just to even further wrap up our our rule of threes exploration from last month mm-hmm. during last month. I'm like, I just want to watch like a series I haven't really seen before Just something. Okay. Look, it's all on HBO max. So I watched through all five final destination films. Have you seen those? <laughs> I I think so. I think I've seen them all. Okay, cool. My, I'm pretty sure I have. I auditioned ins- for the fifth one back <laughs> really? in the day. And let me tell you the script you know, the early version of the script, the 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 working title, <laughs> I probably have mentioned this before, but the working title was Five Null Destination. Oh my God, no way. That's yeah. even like a push for you or me. That's like <laughs> Five Null. God, I feel like even our uh, recommendations doesn't go that far. I don't right? know. Maybe I've just lost perspective. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, they wow. They I've met I've met the writer of the of the first one. I don't remember if he did ones after that. He's a super nice dude. He's very what, cool. Is it Glenn Morgan? No, uh, it's no. The, they're, they're the two guys who like came from X Files. Um. Oh damn it! What is his name? I'll think of it. In well, a anyway, uh, just uh, I wanted to give my Jeff, short Jeffrey Jeffrey my uh, great. Cool. Well, my short in summary review of all of them was that it was really fun as a franchise because it just has a formula and it does it hard. And that's kind of what I like in a lot of series is. And uh, as far as just a rule of threes thing, or, you know, we were talking about how the third film in franchises often kind of hones what it's doing in a lot of ways, or it's when it's kind of fully realizes its premise almost. I will mm-hmm. say, yeah, the the first one was my favorite just for being the original, having that, that depth of the the story, whatever, like what we said with our other first films, Nightmare on Elm Street. But I will say the second, my second favorite was the third one. It was Is the uh, third one, the um, the highway one. No, it's the roller coaster one. Ah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> with uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead starring, which oh, certainly cool. helped too. Uh, yeah, but yeah, great. Something about the roller coaster and just all the kills. It was that right balance of serious and silly. So. Yeah. It was cool. Let's notice. Oh, it's the third one also. Here we go. I wouldn't mind revisiting. I, I rewatched the highway one. Is that two? Uh, yes. Okay. So I rewatched um, that, I don't know, sometime yeah. in the last year. Great. Well, we got a whole film to get to today, unless you had anything to report on on your end. I don't have anything <laughs> to report. I still haven't seen Dune. If you can believe it, I just have not been able to find the right moment. I'm seeing it today, only though because of some encouragement from a friend. I was I was resigned to not watching any uh, non horror films this month. We're recording this; it's still October. But... Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's fair. I, look, I think you know I've read the book a couple times. I I like the original movie for what it is. It's crazy and fun and. The history of it is really interesting. Uh, that'll be part of my recommendation. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to watch it. So, you know, I don't know. 
tonight or tomorrow, I think, is when I'm going to get to it. I love that your news is that you haven't done something. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's, most, that's most days for me. <laughs> All right. Great. Well, for today, for today, to truck along here with episode 167, let's move back to 1971 for today's I remember film. it well. <laughs> Great. All right. The name of the film, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. All right. Was, had, so had you seen this before? Did it ring no. any bells? Okay, cool. I think I might have, but even though I'm not old, it's I'm old enough that it could have been like 15, 20 years. You know, when I was 20 was 15 years ago now. So I lived I like this I saw movie it then. when I lived in New England. <laughs> this seems very like, yeah, vintage Tim real life. Yeah. Uh, great. All right. We'll get into the trailer. So directed by John D. Hancock with an original screenplay by Lee Kalchim and then sort of readapted to what John D. Hancock wanted it to be by John D. Hancock. Here we go. <laughs> From 1971. Let's scare Jessica to death. I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Jessica. I'm calling on all the spirits of everyone who's ever died in this house. Jessica. Paramount Pictures presents Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Tim, talk about trailers that ruin the whole movie. I'm glad I didn't watch that before. Jesus, right? Yeah. My God. Well, per our episode, we have a per our rating system. Tim, I would love to know, would you tell yourself to avoid this film, stream this film, rent this film, or buy this film, Let's Scare Jessica to Death? Um, I would rent it. I think I would rent it. It's, um, kind of from a personal taste realm. It's, it's got stuff that I like. I mean, I, it's got some weird problems too, but, uh, you know, whatever. Um, the, I would rent it almost exclusively because of the eerie just sort of tone of it alone. Like the story isn't amazing, although I do like some specific elements of it. Um, but there's just something very strangely like appealing about this style to me. 70s. um it just is so of its time. I don't know how, how to exactly describe it, but it's, it feels like it feels borderline student film E 
um, but in the best way. It feels like a few people got a hold of a camera, went out into the middle of the woods, and just like got kind of weird and experimental. But it is, I think the reason it succeeds for me is that it's rooted in a an actual con fairly concrete story um so so it's not it's not just an experimental like hey whatever whatever like fever dream or something but it's got fever dream elements and it's got creepy new england damp fall vibes which i love <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, only difference for me there in everything you just said is I only love it secondhand via the movies. I've not been. I've only hoped to go. But no, I do second all your your feelings, including your rent it rating for just those reasons. Yeah, man, you can't you can't make a nineteen seventy-one movie unless you're in nineteen seventy-one. <laughs> right. All right. So rent it all around. Actually, and the this the one I'll just, you know, how I, how I viewed it just to be a little more specific. I'd give them a little more credit than saying student filmy and just say clearly like indie filmy that then got, which is what happened. Indie film got picked up by a major distributor. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a better way of putting it. Sort of what I mean is like contemporary student film often is trying to do what 70s independent film did. <laughs> got it. Okay, cool. <laughs> so. Sorry to be unclear. Sorry to mince words, but we are dismembering whore after all. <laughs> all right. Well, Tim, since uh, this film's your wheelhouse in a way, do you want to you wanna give us our summary? Just tell us what this film is and a brief rundown of what occurred in it? Sure. So you've got uh, three friends, Jessica, Duncan, and Woody. And Jessica has is newly out of uh, a insane asylum of some sort hospital for whatever mental disorder she's been suffering from. But she's she's seemingly better enough to be out in the world. And her boyfriend, Duncan, who was a uh, a bassist at, in the Philharmonic, um has decided to buy a apple orchard up in Connecticut. And so they're leaving New York city in a hearse, no less uh, with his base in a very large coffin esque case. Um, hence the hearse, right? They buy a hearse to accommodate the base, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, you know, it's fall and they're, they're driving up to see the house that he purchased on this apple orchard and to live off of that instead of the city. And very quickly, we understand that Jessica may or may not still kind of be suffering from either delusion or um, maybe some schizophrenia or something of that ilk. But she's keeping it under wraps. And when they get to the house, there is a squatter there named Emily. And uh, her and Woody seem to take a shine to each other. 
And but she says, you know, she'll she's sorry she was squatting. She just thought the place was abandoned, so she'll be on her way. And they invite her to stay. And she's, you know, they're all kind of hippie weirdo, kind of like, you know, f- free flowing cool dudes and well, I th- uh, you could describe them as hold on hippies because what's interesting is this is the transitionary 60s to 70s period so i just mentioned since this is the summary it has a lot to do with this sort of the the, the waning hippie counterculture transitioning into the more um skeptical stoic you know the era that came okay in the 70s cool yeah great agreed uh i've never heard that term so cool Wait, what's um, term? <laughs> hold on, hippies. Is that? What oh, you said? I I just said it. <laughs> I don't. Oh, you made it up. Yeah. Well, it's a term now. Everyone, remember it, or else. Uh, okay. So they all they all are hanging out, but Jessica's kind of you know she's right on the edge. She's seeing some stuff. She's seeing the specter of a young girl in a white dress. And they learn a little bit about the house that the uh, the owners of the house back in the 1800s, um, the daughter, I think it was, or maybe it's the wife. I don't remember. I think it's the daughter on her wedding day or something like that. She drowned in the um, the little cove that's up against the property. And very quickly, things kind of spiral in that Jessica is like seen, you know, she's seen a body in the in the water and. She's seen visions and she sees an uh, antique dealer's body, you know, thrown off of a waterfall and dead. And she starts to freak out and everybody's concerned. Um, she also discovers a picture of the former residents from the 1800s. And lo and behold, one of them looks exactly like Emily, the squatter. And so... God, I don't know how to describe it. Kind of just gets eerie and creepy and she's wandering around and the townsfolk are all weirdos and like assholes. Um, and there's a there's a lore about like maybe maybe the daughter who drowned is still around and that she's a vampire. And it turns out that's kind of what's going on. <laughs> it seems or it's all in Jessica's head. We don't know. But at the end of the day. Jessica believes that the town folk and Emily are some sort of weird vampire cult thing and they've killed Woody and they've converted Duncan, I guess. And they're after her. They're, you know, Emily tries to bite her neck a couple times. They kill the, uh, the mute da- uh, mute woman who, or girl who's been running around. Um, she ends up in the base case. Um, so it's just like, uh, you know, it's it's weird and eerie. She And she flees. She gets on the rowboat and goes out in the water, and they're all standing on the shore like creeps. Right. And that's it. But sadly, a rowboat in the little lake, not like out in the greater uh, no, surroundings. No, she tries to get out of there and take the ferry. Um away from town but the fairy guy has they all the townspeople have like some sort of scratch or cut of varying you know types which seems to indicate that they're they're 
something. I don't know. It's well, no, that's pretty vague. That's what uh, that's what I was referring to in the trailer. It really spoiled a lot. That was our big ending. Was that they all had vampire scars? Right, but like, what that? What does that even mean? They're just like scratches. <laughs> well, some of them are like deep cut. And some of them are just scratches. Like, what does that Im- imply? I think for whatever reason, they just didn't go with the standard two holes uh, vampire yeah, thing. Yeah. That's fair. <laughs> it is creepy, though, regardless. It's like, th- I, to me, a lot of this movie is just sort of feels undefined, but like it doesn't matter because it's more about the like eerie feeling that it gives you and not sort of so dependent on like literal translation. And that kind of works best because Jessica, we don't know her state of mind. So we don't know what's real and what's in her head. And that's the movie. Great. And this is the rest of our episode. (laughs) We'll continue on here. (laughs) The first section, what worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? What worked for you? Like a charm, Smith. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'll say that 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 all works to me. Like that that um framework, I think is cool and it's handled well. It's not. It doesn't kind of go too far into just like nothing to hold on to are you talking um, about sort of the framework of once we know what the story is like all that all that we have been watching play out well what i mean is the conceit that jessica's state of mind is what we're following and so we just can never know if she if what she's experiencing is real or not it's funny how this always happens where, like, I just so am not excited about when that's, like, a possible interpretation of a film. I'm just, like, always, no, it's always so much more exciting if it is supernatural. That's what we're here for. So let's just get to the goods in that sense. So, but luckily all that still, I mean, that all wholly doesn't worked matter. for me. Yeah, exactly. The, the question is what's interesting to me. Like, we're experiencing it one way or the other so it doesn't it doesn't matter well it to me it doesn't matter that it's it's not it's not like a binary choice it's just a question yeah and that to me the having the question exist is what makes it interesting okay so you're saying framework as in like an ongoing just kind of uh uh reference point or, or, or point of view to be observing all the happenings through yeah, I mean, you're watching this thing and you're experiencing it, experiencing it along with her, and that's all fine and good and exciting. But then underneath that is always the question, the skeptical question of, but what if? What if this is all just her, like, brain, uh, you know, misinterpreting things or, or whatever just a a sort of a fever dream what what if yeah and you can walk away from the movie going shit i don't know um cool yeah scary it's like a dream did it happen or not yeah i can kind of uh i can kind of build off that in sense 
even though it's like in that the story sense, it doesn't specifically excite me when that's the case. But in the stylistic sense, it really excited me. Like as like maybe my favorite example, like what you're talking about, just representing her state of mind and whatnot. The sound effects. I was just, I was really floored by the sound design, sound effects in this film. Whether it's the, we have just sort of like occasional, just low undercurrent mm-hmm. um, voices, whether they're her voice of like her, you know, her inner monologue kind of whispering to herself or just mm-hmm. other discordant voices or things she's imagining other people saying. Like that, I thought was just incredible. And then um, there's one standout scene I thought that not only incorporated that, but just some of the the diegetic sounds that were going on. It's that first night they're all hanging out and uh, uh, she's credited as the girl, but her name's Emily. Um, she starts playing on her, uh, her old, what do you call that kind of guitar? I forget. A lute. A lute. <laughs> and then so <laughs> Duncan, who... I'll mention uh, is really funny and distracting. Just he's the doctor or the psychiatrist from The Exorcist, so it was like, oh yeah, that guy. Um, <laughs> but he comes out and joins her with his bass, and when he starts playing the bass, it's it's got this like uh, accentuated, non-realistic yet hyper-real quality to the sound design. Like they kind of just oomphed it up in some a natural way. Um, and it just yeah. sort of starts to play to Jessica's paranoia. It sort of, it's sort of like should be a fun comforting moment and it kind of is, but then it also just all the sound design, including that just adds up to make it like, there's just something wrong and off here as really wowed with what they did. Yeah. They, they, I don't know how to, cause this is not exactly my realm, but like how you describe this, but essentially they took the bass notes that are being played and put it through some sort of, I don't know, filter or whatever. And it created this, this dissonant frequency. And then they took that and pumped all of it up, like right onto the verge of it, like peaking where it's just sort of the sound itself is almost falling apart sonically. Like it's actually starting to crackle almost. And it, man, it is very uh, un, unsettling. It's, yes. It's cool, though. <laughs> unsettling. A good word to maybe get into. Just kind of expand more on kind of what you said up front was working. Just atmosphere, vibe, mm-hmm. location, all that, all that, all that. Like Yeah, I I agree just overall the the soundscape. There's one thing that I don't like about it, which is this guitar strum thing that like happens a fair amount to sort of end out sequences. Um, but everything else I like. It's dissonant and it's creepy and it's got that analog kind of digital, what is it called? Like an ARP, I think is what they're called. These weird sort of like of the era um essentially the precursor to synthesizers of the 80s and you know they're very weird and cool and give you the creeps usually (laughs) (laughs) yeah well just as far as things that are of the time um and then i guess just to then go into the the overall atmosphere but of the time sound stuff 
I'd also include just write how it started out, which ends up being a bookend where she's out on the little canoe in the mm-hmm. lake. And it's before we see sort of the reverse of who's looking at her that we find out at the ending. We get her voiceover and immediately it's like the quality of that voiceover is just so distinctly <laughs> early 70s, late 60s. The it quality really is. of her voice, I was just like, it just hit me and gave me chills immediately. It's, it sounds so satisfying too, just the kind of, I don't know if my microphone's quite catching it, how I mean it, but... Anyway, if if you've seen any movie from this era and it's just our heard microphones, no microphones at all, you kind of get what I'm saying. You know, <laughs> you know what it reminded me so much of is <laughs> the Lois Lane monologue in Superman the movie. <laughs> when <laughs> which is one of the the kind of dorkiest, campiest moments of that whole movie. Where where she's got the interview with Superman and he like takes her flying mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like her enjoying the flying and then this monologue of what she's thinking or maybe maybe what she's going to write in her piece about him. But <laughs> I'm going to read it to you because it's hilarious. <laughs> it rhymes too. do it in it's the like, 70s voice as much as possible. Yeah. She's like, can you read my mind? Do you know what it is that you do to me? <laughs> I don't know who you are. Just a friend from another star. <laughs> Here I am, like a kid out of school, holding hands with a god. I'm a fool. Will you look at me, quivering like a little girl, shivering? You can see right through me. Can you read my mind? And on and on it goes. But it okay. is, I mean, it is so funny. And But it is a style. And it. <laughs> there's something, I think, honestly, it's better suited for a movie like the one we watched rather than Superman. <laughs> um, but take it for what it's worth. It is funny to, to see these, you know, just the stylistic realities of an era. The quality is warm and intimate. I describe yeah. it as, but then with just sort of the context of what she's saying in this one, and already just from the get go, there's this this haunting, haunting feel to the proceedings. It just uh, plugs right in, set the stage. It was great, um, and then I mean, just everything else. I mean, it's an indie film shot in this in this era. Excuse me. Um, so just the film itself. I mean, the locations. The the set, what they're eating, the plates they're using, it's just like, ooh, I don't know. Do you think it's, I mean, this is a things of note, but is, I imagine it's it's could be as creepy then, but just creepy in a different way from how it is now. I don't know. Just, because now looking back at this era, it's 50 years ago, It's it's got this sort of uh, twice removed eeriness on top of what was originally there. I don't know. Just interesting, helped with it all. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, can you well we've seen we've seen homage movies to this general era. Um, like uh what's the one? I saw no, not I saw the devil. Um House of the Devil mm-hmm. um is very much just doing that like late or mid 70s slasher sort of satanist cult yeah well even thing. like th- like the opening title on that like in here it's that great 
just kind of um, curvy yet blocky cursive yep. that's just so of the time. It's great. Well, Which the, I just love all of that. Yeah. Uh, the Roman numerals year at the bottom, all that. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> there's, though, you know, just outside of it being um, of its era, there's certain just, I think, timeless story elements to that add up to the the quality and atmosphere of this. I mean, the weather, <laughs> you know, on top of the location, it's just constant fog and dreary. The whole thing's gray. Uh, the fact that it's on an island, I think, you know, as a big part, small island town with the community that from the get-go is just, um, they're just, they're just like old people staring at the the young hippie types, you know? So there's that tension that's there. The fact that they're moving into an old house with an attic and quickly learning the history. It's just got all these sort of key uh, tenants of, of this kind of story. Ten- I never know to say tenants, tenants, anyway. Yeah. No, it really, the environment, I think, you know, I don't know which came first, really. Like, is this a chicken or an egg thing? But it is so this Dunwich horror kind of Lovecraftian New England eeriness. And I'm like, it. I imagine that the reason this environment is so um, perfect for scary stories is just because that's naturally what it evokes rather than we now associate this era with horror because of the stories that were told about it. I think I think it came it the eeriness came first and I think it's because it's damp it's squishy. Uh, it's often cold. Uh, it's wooded. You know, like these are all things that just have like an, an inherent creepiness to them. At least for me, I mean, growing up in that sort of area and living in that area for a long time. It always just feels kind of eerie and cool. Yeah. Well, cool to me. <laughs> cool and cold. Uh, yep. Well, to, just to shift gears a little into other things that are giving it an underlying, just just sort of tension. There's something always off. Um, I'll say, I mean, it's overall realism is maybe I should have included in in everything we were just saying. Just that realistic '70s style, you know, plug right into ooh, this yeah, just something about it feels real. But in um, a story sense, in a character sense, I thought it was really well done, and actually plugs into the idea of sort of. Imagine like coming out of the, you're coming out of the free love 60s time. So we have this couple, they're trying to make things work with this new farm life. But you know, they're on the level, it's like where she can ask him, oh, well, do you, do you think uh, Emily's attractive? And, you know, he goes, yeah. And, you know, that's, that's fine. That shouldn't be, you know, an issue. But it does sort of get at that. I don't know how to describe it. It's like, it feels like the death of that era. Yeah, it's like, like the the most optimistic kind of free love. You know, even though the ideals and ideas were there, it doesn't mean that just because they believe them doesn't mean they necessarily are able to embody them, which I think mm-hmm. is a big um, theme and idea of stories, both real life and not about this time. Well, and also the movie, the movie kind of well, who knows if it's purposeful or not, but, but like my takeaway is that there's a bit of commentary on that feeling in that like when you have an assimilation story, right? There's a town of people who were 
effectively, you know, killed and taken over by this entity, they assimilated to that norm. And they, as a group, are working toward making her convert and assimilate over as well. And that is sort of an inherently scary idea, right? Like join the cult, join the, join the norm. You're the outsider coming in, like what you're the one who's different. And we all, I think can feel, we feel that way in various times. And then having her also be somebody who's suffering from mental illness, like it just, it just multiplies or magnifies that effect, right? Like of, am I different? Am I weird or am I sick or am I, you know, like what's wrong with me? That feeling is so imbued into this type of story. And so, and it is scary, right? Like the group think takeover idea, I imagine coming out of the sixties and feeling like, oh man, we had this thing and it's kind of over now. And now everybody's trying to figure out who they are and what to do with themselves. Well, yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting, yeah, you know how you put it just there makes me think it's you know it's um it's uh you know in looking at things like politically, however, just you know just energies in the world, you know that's sort of a you know one one ideal went too far, so now conservatism has to step back in, but this story uh it's just works great how it's like she's a she's a vampire or whatever from the eighteen hundreds, so mm-hmm. it is just like this this sort i don't know it gives that sense of the past doesn't want to die and we can't move on from it and you get trapped Which in this town yeah such a new england thing <laughs> yeah like, new england is just so steeped in this old world history yeah you know it's cool the other thing that i think is cool is that this was a really transitional era in the us right this sort of philosophically transitional era where people were like man who are we? What are we doing? Like, what's the point? What does anything mean? Like, they're the great rise of esotericism through the 70s and like the searching for meaning and searching for purpose was huge at that time, which ironically, you know, seems like it kind of happens every, I don't know, probably every 50 years or something like that. There's this sort of rise of that and then fall and then, you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, I like all that stuff. It's, it's really creepy and, you know, interesting to me. Yes. All right. Uh, how about ghost vampire stuff? I'll tell you what, Ryan, there's very little I love more than a creepy old picture. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It just, I don't know why, man. I, like I'm I'm also a big fan of those um like when you go to a, like a ghost town or an old west town and you you do the portraits like you dress up and do the portrait like I think that stuff's fun. It's so dorky most of the time, but once in a while you get it right and it looks amazing. Oh, especially there are places that do that with uh what's it called the old like tin print thing. Yes, yeah, yeah tin yeah, type. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It, you got to do that. You and Britt got to do that. You guys will look great and old timey. Well, she she really wants to do tintypes. They're hard, man. They're really a challenge. You have to sit still for like an hour. Well, I'm tell her I'll be happy to model for her. That sounds awesome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, that uh, that picture that we keep seeing so much of uh, Emily. I mean, it looks 
just like her. It's so funny. Um, well, the the ghost vampire stuff, and I say, I mean, I want to use both of those words too because this, it, I don't know, this film does something interesting or cool where it, I don't know, it kind of acknowledges that vampires depending on the specific rules within this whatever story, they can be ghosts essentially. Like let's say if they can kind of move around or appear or disappear in a kind of ghost-like way. I don't know. So I just thought that was interesting how this felt like a ghost movie, even though it was technically vampires, but at the same time also blurred those lines in the rules themselves. Yeah. You know what I mean? But as far as if you're kind of looking at them as ghost spectrals, we also have um, this just sort of random ghost girl that kind of like leads Jessica along and helps her a bit or like tries to show her stuff or whatever. And uh, I don't know, just that kind of that that kind of presence in this film. And and then also and then also just the idea of the girl, Emily, too. It does that thing that we talked about that I love like in a, like the wailing and Asian horror where mm, the mm-hmm. ghost is just a fully present, just shot like any other normal person uh, uh, presence or being, you know, there's no, there's nothing really yeah. extra given to it except for maybe in the performances that are sort of coming through in a interesting undercurrent. Anyway, I just, I just love when films do that and it was cool to see a relatively earlier example of all that. Yeah, I have to say, I think that what they're doing with this character who I don't does does she have a a name or is she just she's just a mysterious blonde woman (laughs) (laughs) and she's mute. And I think that this is really kind of sorry, I was actually doing that wrong looking at the credits here. Yeah, Emily is okay. Sorry, I was calling I was using Emily and the girl interchangeably, but the girl is different. The girl okay, is okay. So the the, the girl, girl is white. the mute, yeah. blonde girl, yeah, yeah who's sorry. sort of a specter, right? Yeah, seemingly. Okay, so I just have to say, from a writing and story point of view, I think this character is not only really cool and essential, but it's it's really really well constructed. So here's why. Number one. We think it's in Jessica's head. So we've we've already set up this like unreliable narrator with with Jessica because we don't know what her mental state is, but she's seen this woman. But then they they take it further and she is physically real and other people are seeing her. Right? Like they chase her down. Duncan grabs her. They're like, what's your deal? And then to also make her mute. So she's she's essentially sort of from a fairy tale point of view, playing the role of this like specter guide, right? She's guiding Jessica along her journey. But by having her not be able to talk, they're doubling down on the lack of um, ability for Jessica to communicate how her experience exists mm-hmm. to other people. And so the guide by having the guide also not be able to communicate is so, so smart because it it evokes the same sort of frustration that Jessica already feels 
right? She's like, well, this this person holds answers and I can't unlock them. Just like Jessica's brain can't kind of necessarily be unlocked to describe or explain what she's feeling or going through. So like having that kind of, they're like, it's, I guess you would say it's almost like a foil to her. And then to also have that person be killed and put into the case, the base case, which is sort of, you know, has all this death symbolism around it as well. I think it's just so smart because it's, it's, it's all layering the same feeling and the same sort of deeper metaphorical meaning of the story of like feeling other um, feeling displaced feeling misunderstood or unheard like all of those things are wrapped up in how they construct this character and i think it's super super smart right which and are effective <laughs> right which are all uh universal things we can relate to and right, i can exactly. um i can also add yeah another universal aspect i think that really taps into that really all tapped into for me or just how i how view how i view it like with having to trust the mute girl, the mute ghost girl, and these whether or not these voices in her head, it's just sort of gets at the human condition, the ongoing human struggle of how much and whether or not at any given time to listen to and trust our intuition. Is that our intuition talking to us right now? This doesn't make any literal, this doesn't make logical sense in this kind of the world that my, my, husband boyfriend and friends are walking in yet i feel this so strongly you know it's i don't know it it, it taps into all that really effectively yeah it's super cool <laughs> well ghost stuff you know i sort of made the stretch even though it's a vampire story you know touching on how it works in ghostly ways but also it works in vampire ways where i just loved every time we had that kind of mini assault on her where they'd try to like where she'd come out and try to bite her neck and would appear out of the lake like oh all that was so good and you just you could feel just like the i don't know just kind of the uh physical invasiveness of it yeah 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 it is it's it's weird to me how effective this style of filming is too i i I'm not sure I know how to like like put my finger on what is making it feel so creepy but it's the cutting of it the the editing of it is so effective like when she's in the water and it's <laughs> and she, I don't know what it is it's just eerie everything about it I mean in this case per particularly like the um the things that are not perfect about the sound actually help in that like they obviously struggled with some sound issues throughout um but that's i think just circumstantial right you can't necessarily have a mic in the water um so they're so you're not really hearing the actual water of <laughs> the take they've got kind of a a faux water sound happening but that makes it even more freaky because it's like it's again not reality it's a it's a version of reality it's a fabricated thing right we we've noted that being like intentionally used in films like quiet on i remember just kind of yeah yeah but once you get that 
everything's just a little off feeling it. It's not always, I think when you try to do that purposefully, it often fails. Not always, but when it's just a matter of fact of like the circumstances and in particular in a movie like this, that's meant to make you feel uneasy or unsettled, it, it ends up coming back around and working really well. Yeah. Well, another film from uh, 10 years earlier that I think does that, I just rewatched another, a five-star favorite of mine is Carnival of Souls. But you oh, remember yeah. just Absolutely. like from the get-go of that, when you have this, what's clear ADR, it, yep. it, it disconcerts you in a way rather than it just being bad. <laughs> yeah. But it's not it's like really it's cool. intentional. Yeah. So then when you do get like, for example, in the when she's swimming and you've got this sort of weird feeling and then she brushes up against the body in the water. All of the soundscape stuff that's happening makes it so much scarier to me. I mean, it's almost like it in a way it's the same thing as a as a jump scare stinger kind of thing, but it's obviously kind of a precursor to that and it's way more effective to me like it it's not it doesn't feel cheap uh in the way that stingers often do yes uh words coming to my adjectives coming to mind you're talking about all this i already said visceral is a big one organic mm -hmm. is the other yeah yeah so I love that stuff the, the another really good scare is when they get into the house and she sees um Emily's like legs flip by up the stairs for the oh, first yeah. time. It's so good. I mean, I think if you want to do jump scares actually well, watch this movie and kind of like dig into those moments and what's working about them and why. Um, because like it's doing a slightly different thing than what has become the, the, I don't know what to call it, the formula, I guess, for a jump scare. And I like it much more. There's a moment also when she's in the attic. I love the design of the house and the attic and all that. I'm sure it was just a place. Um, but there's a, uh, I don't know, it's probably a 30 second kind of sequence where she's looking at the the picture um, in the silver frame and everything up in the attic and she's by herself and she's hearing voices and stuff like that. And then they cut to deep in the sort of recesses of the attic. So it's a long shot through the attic of her. And there is a shadow person just just in black darkness, just obscured enough. Right. But it moves. And you it's easy to miss. And I think that they they actually cut to it twice for that reason. So that you kind of go, if you missed it the first time and you weren't sure what you saw, they show it again the second time and you go, no, that's a person. Like that's a figure right there in darkness. And it's super, super creepy. And then they just cut and turn the camera around and it's Duncan standing at the top of the stairs fully lit. And you're like, wait, but was it him or was it a different thing? Like it just, it's just, it's creepy and eerie and just off settling or off a uh, sort of reality enough for you to question everything. And I think that to me is the big strength of this movie is that you, the movie is constantly putting you in the same state of mind that, that Jessica is in, which is, I don't know what's real. And, but I'm seeing stuff. 
and I know I'm seeing stuff. So what the hell? Yep. The end. <laughs> Never being able to get a a straight story, whether it's uh, you know from her significant other and friends too. Everything is on just feels on shaky grounds from right, <laughs> and that includes the filmmaking, as you're just saying. Yeah, itself, it's great. Um, so just to jump to I guess or more vampire stuff, and just what the ending, what the story ends up being. I'm, we we've already mentioned it. In, in terms of atmosphere setting story of it being a sort of I mean it's it's a word for small I guess it's town but it feels even small you know it's like population 20 you know it's like it's, a village yeah like a small New England village but that I will just say maybe I mean yeah I don't want to get into what didn't work yet but let's just say I was so happy when that twist was revealed and I just sat up in my seat is God, I, I just wasn't expecting it. I don't know. It's just because, again, it feels so, like, realistic, the style and, like, a deliverance, you know, mm-hmm. sense when they first arrive and see these dudes hanging out on the porch. Like, I would never have thought. They just seemed like extras who were sitting there when they arrived, <laughs> right. you know? I didn't think they were going to come back in the story as also having been turned into vampires. Um, but also how incredibly effective is, and it, it reminds me a little bit of the Black Cat, I think, is. I remember right that's the one where they do this where when she um where have they been I think they've they're they're in town it's one of the it's like the first time they're in town um and the three dudes are standing next to the hearse and one of them is digging his heel into the door oh yeah and like scratching it up like what an asshole thing to do right so right (laughs) off the bat i'm like dude these guys suck like what's their problem and then she walks up to him and they do that thing where they put like a 14 millimeter lens in the face of these three guys (laughs) like you know their faces are all distorted and it's kind of canted and they're like pushing in so it's just like womp in your face like super creepy super evocative because we've just already been set up to dislike them and then they and then they get in our face even more or her face and that whole sequence made me it's the perfect way to evoke a visceral like anger fear response because you're like just get out of there like or kick their asses or something because they suck and they're being weirdos and like nobody should have to deal with that (laughs) <laughs> and I love I love it. Love it. Love it. So to have it come back around where it's like, oh, OK, they're not just jerks. <laughs> they're weird vampire cult villagers, like right. or whatever they are, which you get what I mean, just came especially as a surprise when it felt like, yeah, they were literally just extras or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's so good. Yeah. And I mean, more just. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agreed on all of that other elements of that being the story that i loved yeah as i said when it when it was revealed as the twist but just the idea of this um uh siren figure you know who seems innocent young innocent pretty woman who ends up actually being the i don't know what the word would be the the controller the captor of this whole little village and just just combined with the setting itself like where you could just buy that this could happen at the small town i mean if she gets the ferryman like no one is ever coming in and out hardly at all if they do they're either it's not hard for them to get them or it's not out of the realms of possibility they might just 
you know, uh, visit and then leave again, like whoever sold them the house, like whatever. I don't know. It's just so you can just, it has this feeling of like, you could just buy sort of these pockets of the world where this could happen and no one would be the wiser. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, moments therein with the ending, I like you described that one. Uh, something I'm always a sucker for. This happened in. Um, it's it's that it's like the it's like the literal like uh bad guys closing in moment that like i just love it when movies do it i i'm a fan of using it too when it's like you have the often the group that's a sort of coming straight at both the camera and our protagonist and just like what was it not the tenant the tenant was the roman plansky one but what's the one that was where she's upstairs in the where it's the the old priest looking out of the top stairs in New York window. Oh, oh God. Um, damn, what is that one? It's the, it's the Sentinel. The Sentinel, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. You remember the end of that, like everyone just walking in. Yeah, it was that yep. exact kind of scene. I'm just, it's just so much fun. I'm suck a, such a sucker for it. Uh, so I well, appreciated and that. You know, it, we see it. We see it in all of, you know, a fair number of these movies. It's a really effective device. Like you said, Carnival's. Carnival of Souls does yep. it. Um, the cult. It is the black cat, I think. It's like in the basement cult um, scene. Yeah, I, I just watched that again, too. I don't. It doesn't reach that moment where they're all literally closing in. Uh, they're just kind of outsiders. But still, that was eyes, as far as eyes, groups of eyes looking at you. Yep. Uh, yeah. It's cool. And then um, that's a sort of getting us to the ending here. You know, I love that. But then just to have it, it just make it feel like this nice little novella with that ending of a wrapper or that wraparound of an ending mm -hmm. where it's just as simple as, okay, we've caught up to where we were. Oh my God. It's just, I almost forgot about where it started, you know, of just her in the canoe, but it just makes it. So just give it this nice, satisfying click into place. But then the added bit of info this time being not the, just the context of what we just watched, but that reverse shot of she's she's stuck in the middle of her own miserable lake, uh, being confronted with, is she going to go back to shore where all the vampires await her or not, or just be left to, to die well, there? <laughs> yeah, and again, possibly just a metaphor for the experience of being institutionalized. Yeah, you know, like we don't know or or even just the experience of battling with mental illness. Yeah. Like it's, it's a really cool just, I don't know, way to depict a bunch of different possible um, metaphors, I guess. Yeah. I mean, just in the context of the, a horror story, like you really feel that almost as if it is as if it is a metaphor for. She's almost escaped the asylum, but this final guard that she's befriended turns out to be in on it too, which is like the fairy right. man who, you know, was just seemed so separate and not was ever going to, and it just kind of like the townspeople themselves, like the fairy man, especially just seemed so separated from the world that we've just entered of being a ghost, but nope, he's turns out to be a vampire ghost too. So just, uh, well, and it's also, not, can't I mean, escape. It's, it's such a, it's such a, um, an allusion to mythical stories like the, you know, the fairy man that takes you from limbo to uh, Hades or whatever it is, like all of that stuff. So for all we know, this is more of an alley or is it allegory? No, a uh, allusion, I guess, to that kind of 
thing of of the the transition from one realm to another and like being trapped in limbo and not being able to get either to let's say your re- your actual reality or what people consider reality and your insanity like maybe like it it's just it's got all of those things kind of built into it of that like that um liminal space of the fairy right it's yeah. like you just don't it's very eerie and very you know poignant i guess to this story and to the broader implication of her state of mind well and in the sense of you know we talked about it being the 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 hippie sentiments being not um you know still still not being all it the how the location works in that sense too and you know as as metaphor or whatnot where you know we we get and feel like oh yeah so she's not doing well that sounds like su- not such a bad thing at all as you go and live the farm life closer to water and nature away from the cement confines of the city. Yet we find there is an evil inherent in those settings, largely a separateness from a larger culture and plugged in and safety around people. Um, so right, right. Yeah. Interesting how it works that way too. Because we yeah, get I, the value I, of going to I quite go. like the, in a way, I like the implication of this story more than anything because it just gets you going, oh man, like there's a lot going on in such a sort of simple thing. And maybe that's, maybe that's the lesson is just like you can, you can do a very simple thing and it can have all sorts of, you know, layered undercurrent to it. Which is fun. I mean, it it is just ostensibly just a cool, creepy vampire story. Yeah. And look at all that's there. And well, should we see if there's anything that did not work about this cool, creepy vampire story? Yeah. All right. Let's do it then in our next section here. What did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. What did not work? (laughs) you know this reminded me i should say in a good way of it didn't work so much for you of uh i am the pretty thing that lives in the house and Hmm. watch other movies but for all that was working about its era for this kind of film i do feel like it came before an era where you the the 70 minute horror movie was less in vogue and uh, I think this movie would have worked a lot better for me. Not saying it didn't work, but for what it was, simple story, well told. It could have been, you know, I mean, an hour and a half doesn't sound like long. But when you, when you sort of think of the possibilities, if they had just cut 15, 20 minutes out, I thought it would have behooved this film. Mm. And that because that kind of combines with, I don't know, Tim, like, how was your I'm curious how your viewing experience was with emily being in the old picture and that kind of being like in the movie from the beginning like from early on because like it's so clearly her that i just kept going like okay it it felt like they were gonna just that was gonna be the twist but i'm like guys that's not a twist because it's so like obvious (laughs) right so it was just sort of this i don't know so just maybe it's just a first time viewing thing but my feelings the whole time watching it kept being like 
there better be more going on than it's that that she's the one in the painting because i think it's supposed to be obvious but at the same time i can't tell if the movie wants me to think that so anyway uh that's that's all is to kind of plug into also what I said, like why once we got the twist where it was the whole town and she had already gotten her friends too, that uh, that I really perked up then. To be fair, I didn't realize it was Emily until maybe the second or third time they showed it. <laughs> cool. And I was like, oh, right. OK, here we go. So I don't know. I mean, I think that's... um you were particularly observant and some people might not be. So <laughs> hard to say which is the right choice. All right. Well, yeah, you could, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, nothing more to expand on for me than just was kind of because of all that. And just in general reasons could have just been a little shorter would have worked better for me, but whatever. Yeah. That's a tough, it's a tough call. I, I yeah, I maybe, I think I maybe agree. There's sort of a section that's like two thirds through where I was like, we're kind of doing the same thing still. So yeah, I, I could get behind that idea. Even if it's like five minutes, it might, might've served the movie. Um, the thing that really just was hard. I'm so glad it, it resolved itself, but that opening couple scenes of, of ADR like dialogue is so bad i mean it's so bad to the point that <laughs> there's a moment when jessica is talking and it's adr right they voice they've clearly done a voiceover like it doesn't match and then she says her in the cam in camera her mouth moves and says all right and they didn't even bother to like <laughs> put that adr in like Something must have just been really messed up with the sound on the day that they couldn't use it through so, it right out. So that's that's exactly what we said did work about Carnival of Souls. But for this one, it didn't quite have the same unintentional effect. It's clearly it's so over clear that it's a, 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 like an unresolved screw up. To me, like they tried kind of, but I just don't think that their attempt at fixing it was near uh good enough well it, what? <laughs> it, it was it was wildly distracting and i and i remember thinking like i'm not gonna make it through this movie if the whole thing is like this <laughs> and then they cut to a scene where they're i think it's the dinner scene the first dinner scene where suddenly this sounds fine and you're like oh okay cool but then <laughs> But then later in the dinner scene, when they get the instruments out and Emily is like so clearly not playing the lute, right? The like the music that's coming through as her uh, as her lute playing is not even remotely what her hands are doing. And then Duncan shows up with a bass and his fingers aren't moving at all. And the, you know, the music is all it's moving around. And it's just like, to me, little things like that are really problematic. Like, just don't shoot the hand that's moving that should be moving along the fretboard or or the, the neck of the bass so that you don't get screwed in this kind of continuity problem. It's just too distracting to me. So. It's interesting. I didn't notice those latter things. Of the, course you did. The didn't. instruments. 
But no, I, what it, what is interesting is though, but you admit there's other technical things that may have been unintentional yet did work for you in that disconcerting way. I know. So it's a really weird, it's a really weird line. And I don't know. That's why I say I don't think generally speaking, it can be manufactured. I think it's one of those things that just gets left to the, you know, the film, the film deities that just decide <laughs> when a thing's going to be cool or not. Yeah, yeah. In the favor of Carnival of Souls and in right. favor of uh, as far as the ADR and sometimes in favor in this one. Like, to be fair, as this movie carries forward and less of those actual overt problems are visible, the weirdness is sort of it hones down into a, a a place where i go okay this is actually the movie like we've we started outside of this kind of the zone like the right zone and we've like moved our way from the beginning of the movie into the zone and now we're in the zone okay cool we're in the zone we're good i can like let it go but you know <laughs> I don't know how much control you really do have over it or if it just like worked out that way. Yeah. As you said, the film gods let us know. Yeah. Uh, time will tell. Well, did you have anything else that did not work for you? Um, you don't have to scrape the barrel here. Just not, not really. Um, there was, there was something about, I don't know if I could put my finger on it, so it's really not worth trying too hard, but there was something about the the moment of her in bed with Duncan and realizing that he had the scar. I don't know what it was, but it felt it felt off. Like it felt like it didn't match up to like the expectation of that, what that moment should be for her. But then it, it does come back around right after when she's like actually fleeing. So I don't know. There's some there's just, you know, stuff that doesn't quite land maybe is the best way to to put it, because there's other stuff that lands so well that you're kind of like, oh, that that one didn't quite work. Um, I, it, it does make me realize that we've I forgot to mention in what did work. <laughs> I had a couple of those, too. So do you want to say just get those out of the way now or save it for things of note? Well, I have. Uh, sure. Let's do them in things of note. Okay. I, I I really don't think I have much more in terms of things that didn't work. You know, it great. It me neither. It just is what it is. I'm yeah. No, that's what I said is all I had to say. But um, okay. Yeah. Let's let's uh do some things of note, which will include uh some noteworthy things that worked. We may have failed to mention. All right. <laughs> right. Things of note. This should be interesting. Or right, I have to say, the I, I don't know how I failed to mention this. I feel like I thought I thought of it and then didn't say it. The hand coming out of the water along the side of the boat is one of the best scary shots ever. I don't know why. It's the right hand. It's the right speed. It's the right frame. I, I don't know. It's so awesome. Like that's a poster. Yeah. Like like I it and it doesn't I think part of why it works is because 
up to that point, we've only ever established that there was a woman in the lake. And then you've get this meaty man hand that's coming out and it feels so much more threatening. And it's wet. And then you have her, whatever that whale harpoon pick thing. I think that's, I don't know what that thing's called, but it's, it's basically a hook on the end of a stick so that you can presumably, so you can, uh, grab the rope in the water and tie your boat off or something like that i don't know but why is it it feels like it's exclusively used for stabbing sharks in movies yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's right but her winging that thing around oh i loved it it's great great anyway (laughs) uh the whole thing uh that worked for me that i failed to mention i'll mention now was just the the casting and the acting i thought was great like the the woman who played jessica Zohra Lampert. She had such an interesting quality, not just feeling like a super 70s looking woman, but just, um, I don't know, real real soulful, but you also wanted to to cheer for her. Um, immediately empathetic, like you, you're excited for her when she started, you know, kind of trying to overcome whatever her, her woes were. We were rooting for her. Yeah, I don't know, really, really, interesting casting great performance and then um yeah, yeah as i mentioned barton Heyman as duncan who's the doctor psychiatrist and exorcist he's good and then just uh like it was super 60s 70s to get kevin o'connor as woody with his mustache just him writing their friend just him writing the uh the plow whatever they're called right uh that was great and then also just yeah perfect casting and quality to emily marie claire costello who's like you i don't i don't know maybe just works for that that siren vampiric role where you just want to trust her so bad but then as you get to know her just something feels off it was really good Great. Agreed. All right. Agreed. Did you think that I, this is so random? So things of note, I yeah. guess. I, I really thought that Emily, the woman who played Emily, um, looked like Beverly D'Angelo. <laughs> yeah. It took me a minute. I was like, wait a minute. I know this person. Like, this is a really recognizable person. Who is it? And I looked at him. I was like, oh, no, it's not somebody I've ever heard of. What the hell? And then like 10 minutes later, I was like, oh. She just looks like somebody recognizable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I can see the resemblance now that you pointed out for sure. Yep. Um, well, some fun things. This originally started as a sort of more like tongue-in-cheek uh, horror comedy um, indictment of hippiedom uh, mm-hmm. for the original script. It was um, called It Drinks Hippie Blood. Was the original screenplay. But uh, Hancock, the director, came in and rewrote it and said, quote, on writing the screenplay, I made it eminently clear to the producers that I did not want to do a satire of a horror picture. I wanted to do a movie that was legitimately terrifying. So it's just interesting how, though, we can still, those themes are still just as ripe, but just took a sort of different point of inspiration. Um, So I don't know. It's It's such... He, he was successful in clear, making it not a satire, yet it's interesting how we can see any sort of commentary is still lurking under the surface sure. as well as right on the surface. 
Yeah, and I like, of course, we keep coming back to this just in, I don't know what it is about the last few years, but uh, it's he had sort of taken some cues from uh, Turn of the Screw, which is, you know, the the book or not novella that one of the movies we did was based off of The Innocents and then has been redone now in the last few years multiple times one was an actual another version called the turn i believe right Mm -hmm. and then another was the uh, haunting of bly manor is a direct um what do you call it a direct uh interpretation no what am i trying to say uh a thing adaptation adaptation thank you what the hell um yeah direct adaptation um and i saw something else recently that that was also kind of loosely based on it too i was like damn like everybody's trying to do this and i just it's a hard one to make work but so be it it's apparently influential yeah you could say maybe it was all influenced by this film points out its comparisons with the 1871 or two novel carmilla which is the story of a vampiress I don't know more than that, but if you want to cool. trace the kernels back, tell, right. tell us all about that one. Maybe you know, maybe you've read it. Um, this is this is straight from the Wikipedia too, but just to kind of you know hear it, um, hear it a more pointed way. What we were talking about um, when this film was set. The decline of 1960s counterculture has been cited as a theme by critics and observers. The hearse that Duncan and Jessica drive, which has the word love spray painted on it, it has been noted as blatant reference to the death of, quote, hippie values. Critic biographer Michael Doyle describes the film as a haunting uh, elegy eulogy for the failures of the hippie movement. Doyle elaborates that the film isolates and illuminates the death and corruption of counterculture values from the era, anticipates the, quote, festering paranoia that occurred throughout the 1970s with the Watergate scandal, assassinations of Harvey Milk and George Moscone, and the Jonestown Massacre. Um, oh, and this is why I like the director's quote. You could already feel that negativity brewing when we were making Jessica, that things weren't working out the way some of us had hoped and dreamed they would. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Tim, uh, this being a transitional film, I sort of plugged into, you know, when we're talking about favorite eras of films and I've touched on it before. I I, I don't know. Maybe, I, maybe there's something to this, but I really think like that each transitional point is like kind of my favorite era or, or largely my favorite eras. Um, like, you know, I've talked about 1960 and its immediate surrounding years loving that with sort of psycho changing everything carnival of souls um seconds just that idea of the um well when the the counterculture was setting in you know and how uh films sort of just in a lot of interesting ways stylistically story-wise did that and then we were talking all about the transition from 60 to 70 in this episode then i agree with you about the appeal of the early 80s late 70s films where something about that is just when it feels pure ripe 70s and that sort of like kids eating cereal in their morning watching commercials (laughs) for star wars toys you know just that that poltergeist uh that era i guess 
Remember that commercial in Mandy? Yeah, yeah, Cheddar Goblin. <laughs> it's so good. And then, uh, and then you know, I've gone out about too with um, that that how I love the late '80s, early '90s period, where there's something that just really tickles me about those kinds of films of like Dolly Dearest and Castle mm. Freak. Just there's something really, yeah, something I love about that. And we've also talked about um, it's easy to love. I do love the. You know, 99 is noted as a, a great year for film, but it's so interesting to look at films from that era of, you know, with 2000, with September 11th hitting and just seeing, I don't know, you just see this sort of dramatic shift that happens right around this time of tuning into the the bubble being, uh, the bubble being burst, right? safety bubble being burst. Um, yeah. So I don't know, just thought that was, I just, I just realized that. Uh, it's a recurring thing from well I, we're about i i can guarantee we're about to enter into a new one yeah i know it'll be interesting to or we're in back. it right now i guess <laughs> well maybe in a few more years also touch on that uh 2000s to 2010s uh transition right. it feels a little too early to dig into that too much still <laughs> yeah. nor do i know enough about i'd have to think longer on the the earlier decade transitions, you know, I started with a 1960, the fifties to sixties transition, but forties to fifties, thirties to forties. <laughs> I'm sure there's sure. stuff in there too. Um, any other things of note you had? No, just the last one I wanted to put out there. Be curious what their thoughts on it. Cause I think it's just like another kind of unanswerable, ill-defined question. But when you're talking about, the how so much of the sort of atmosphere and eeriness uh that um that came from the indie kind of quality that this film has camera movement film stock itself whatever how how you know there's a certain kind of power and depth that comes from that that's behooved by its uh indie lower budget quality Yet we know, like, I mean, think of, God, I mean, just always my go-to example, but just think of, like, David Lynch working with a full budget he needs on Mulholland Drive and creating the scariest moment in film history of the hobo stepping out, or, like, <laughs> what he did with uh, sleek digital cameras coming up with these eerie, powerful moments in Twin Peaks of the Return. Like, it's not a given that you, that an indie quality will necessarily um, is necessary for no for reaching that place that you can do it with a sort of uh, budget supporting a vision in place. Um, it's I think we lose track of that because we see that squandered with the kind of like the the common Hollywood jump scare you know type films that we see a lot, and you know we we forget that maybe they could be using a budget. Um, it sounds super elitist or picky, but maybe that is just my taste. <laughs> no. uh, don't like cheap jump scares. Whatever, though, it's fine now. Like I've been rewatching some of those like two thousands movies, like House of Wax and stuff. They hold up so well. They're so <laughs> of an era. They're fun. Maybe that'll happen with the twenty tens movies. Anyway, I don't know. Yeah, what what do you think about that? Like. <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you're like setting out to do something like, I don't know, I, I guess, sorry, so just to keep rambling and say my thoughts on it. It's that the the unifying thing between those two different poles I can see is that the intent there 
is strong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The belief of the magic of film and what it can do is what's consistent. So maybe I'm kind of just posing and answering my own question, but I thought that was all, all that was interesting. Yeah. I do too. I don't have an answer. <laughs> okay, no no additional <laughs> thoughts. Okay. Watch everything. That's my answer. That's what we're doing here, right? Horror right? movie by horror movie. <laughs> we'll get to them all. <laughs> cool. Great. I'm glad this one, uh, I'm glad you pulled this one. Yeah. And uh, we were watching this, uh, this Blu-ray we watched came out January 2010, thanks to Scream Factory. So it hadn't been a... Uh, yeah, it was harder to track down till recently. Um, well, this is fun just to, you know, to some legacy notes on it from the Wikipedia, just because it's a nice way to wrap up. Um, let's see. As with many movies, the tone of Jessica is what matters, and that is indeed where it succeeds. That's uh, a quote from Sarah Century writing for Sci-Fi. And then in the early 2010s, London's Time Out conducted a poll with several authors, directors, actors, and critics who have worked within the horror genre to vote for their top horror films, who ranked the film number 86 in the list of 100 films. Mm-hmm. Um, 2006, Chicago Film Critics Association pronounced Let's Scare Jessica to Death the 87th scariest film ever made. <laughs> I don't know how much you're pushing it when you reach 87, but hey, there are a lot of horror memes out there. People are aware of it to some extent. It's doing something. When I rented this from Videotech, uh, the girl who rented out was like, oh, yeah, I love that one. I hope you like it. Super cool. So it has its fans. Nice. Cool. All right. All right, Tim, should we wind down then from Let's Scare Jessica to Death with some recommendations? Yeah. I actually, I'm going to change mine from what I was going to say. I was going to do one about Dune, but that's it seems not uh, relevant right now. What does seem relevant to the, having just watched this movie is the uh, the location environment of New England made me think of the series that I just finished and quite, quite, quite liked called Midnight Mass, uh, also a vampire tale. So um, at, I was skeptical at first because it's, it's the dude who we've kind of wondered about. Uh, his name's Mike Flanagan and gotten some criticism for kind of saying that he doesn't like believing ghosts and and people are like you what mean, are you talking about you direct horror what's your problem and you mean I think that maybe that, that's undo. from that's from me <laughs> you mean i don't know if people say that. no it, uh, you're not alone you're okay. not alone um no he's very hit so, or miss for me but i've been wanting to check this one out i've he, heard good things i agree and you know i hated bly manor like hated it all right I turned it off like where i was like i'm not into it but i quite liked hill house so yeah anyway so Midnight Mass, equal parts, creepy New England, um, incredibly moving at times. I was like, okay, I can get behind this one. So that's mine. I've yeah, I've been um, <laughs> recommended it once from you, but recommended it twice <laughs> from other friends too. Nice. So I'm gonna check it out. Uh, well, to to look at the other side of the coin from vampires, I'm gonna represent a or uh, shout out, recommended a werewolf movie. And Ooh. talking about its perfect example of transitional from 90s to 2000s and that that period too. From 2000, I hadn't seen Ginger Snaps. I oh, dude, Ginger Snaps. 
rules. Yeah, it's so good. As a, I think, I, yeah, no, I watched it under Joe Bob, but he kind of points out where like everything's great except for the title kind of just doesn't evoke a lot or I don't know. It, it took, I don't know. It, it, yeah. Whatever. Great. Except for that. I'm fine with the title, whatever. But anyway, I was uh, taken with it. Thought it was great. I get it's fandom. It has is much deserved. Really interesting to look at. Like it was apparently um, really hard to get funding for it because of the school shootings that were just happening mm-hmm. around that time mm-hmm. too. Um, so, you know, another big, big, uh, yeah, something representative of that era too. Anyway, that'd be fun. Maybe we could dismember it sometime. But for now, I'll yeah. just recommend Dead Ginger Snaps uh, in case you're like me and hadn't seen it. But I know a lot of you have, so I'm I'm, I'm joining joining up now. Sweet. All right, Tim, you got a hat handy? We can pull out what we're watching next week. I sure do. It's right here. All right. I believe it's, it's my your, turn. Your poll, yeah. right? Yeah. And. Stop. Okay, here we go. Let's get it the right way. Can you read that? The Beast with Five Fingers from 1946. Cool. 46. (laughs) Here we go. All right. Uh, Yeah, we had some ongoing requests uh, for older films of this era. So I think I did a kind of, I kind of did a delving of, lists that were specifically like top horror films 30s 40s 50s and tried to put in whatever the ones i hadn't seen were from that so this is one of them nice let's see how it holds up all right well until then you can find us wherever you found us including at dismemberinghorror.com we've been up on our instagram all sorts of fun things like that we are a proud member of the connected podcast family that's connected no e at the end. Well, we'll, well, we're going to say more on that later. We're still, we're still in the early stages. We're joining them. I'll be doing some more shout outs soon of other shows. We're excited about. Absolutely, I'm really yeah. excited to actually dive into the other shows and get a feel for them because uh, yeah, they sound some of them. I mean, I've I've only scratched the surface of the ones that I've I've uh, been told about, and they look super cool. they do yeah great all right well in closing whether you want to scare jessica to life or death thanks for listening and we will see you next time goodbye